The Old Testament lesson for Christmas Day is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah, the 62nd chapter, verses 6 through 12. You'll find that on page 608 in your pew Bibles if you wish to follow along. Promise made long before Christ and fulfilled in him on Christmas. Verses 6 through 12 in Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food to your enemies. And never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a barrier for the nation, a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. And now from the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, some selected verses introducing you to various characters who played a part in that first Christmas. Luke chapter 2, page 832 in your pew Bibles. First, verses 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Verse 13, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God. And verse 18, And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And finally, verse 19, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Irma Bombeck once said, There is nothing sadder in all this world than to wake up on Christmas and not be a child. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Let me explain through a very simple story why. Grandpa died on Christmas Eve. He'd been ill for a long time, and it wasn't unexpected, but it was difficult. There were three grandchildren. The six-year-old coped 
by cleaning her room with a vengeance. The five-year-old just cried and wanted to sit on mommy's lap. The two-year-old just walked around the house saying, presents, mommy, presents. Well, they had their celebrations. Three Christmas parties that year, a little more subdued, but happy, and all of them with presents. Two days after Christmas, they had a funeral for Papa. It began with everybody singing Amazing Grace, and that started everybody crying, except the two-year-old. The pastor got up and started to pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. And the two-year-old jumped up on the pew, stood on it, waved his arms and said, Presence! Yippee! Presence! And the same thing happened there that happened here. Some people laughed nervously, like, did you laugh at a funeral? Or about one? But the pastor stood up and said, you know, the little guy has a point. The presence is the present. We learned a lesson here today from him. And that's part of why I say there's nothing sadder in all the world than to wake up on Christmas and not be a child. I have a beautiful book in my library at home called simply Christmas with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the first section of that book is called The Reversal of All Things. Let me just read a portion to you. If we want to be part of these events, Advent and Christmas, we can't just sit there like a theater audience and enjoy all the lovely pictures. Instead, we ourselves will be caught up in this action, the reversal of all things. We, we must become actors on this stage. For this is a play in which each spectator has a part to play, and we cannot hold back. What will our role be? Worshipful shepherds bending the knee? Or kings bringing gifts? What is being enacted when Mary becomes the mother of God? When God enters the world in a lowly manger? We cannot come to the manger in the same way that we would approach the cradle of any other child. Something will happen to each of us who decides to come to Christ's manger. Each of us will have been judged or redeemed before we go away. Each of us will either break down or come to know that God's mercy is turned toward us. What does it mean to say such things about this Christ child? It is God, the Lord and creator of all things, who becomes so small here, comes to us in a little corner of the world, unremarkable and hidden away, who wants to meet us and be among us, to 
is a helpless, defenseless child. What a present. What a presence. This morning I invite you to come with me for just a few minutes to Bethlehem to see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us, to receive the present, to sense the presence, and to walk beside some who went before us to show us the way. First, there was Joseph. Not only an unlikely character in the story, but a man of unlikely faith. A man who obeyed, and his obedience is a kind of a paradigm for ours. He did not live without questions and doubts, but he obeyed without hesitation. He showed that faith doesn't have to have all the answers before it acts, and that, in fact, it finds some of the answers as it acts. He would believe an unlikely story because God said so. He would marry an unlikely girl because God said so. He would make an unlikely trip with a woman about to give birth, not just because Caesar Augustus said so, but because God, through Micah, said so. And he would give the baby the name Jesus because God said so. Such faith, such obedience, and such care. He took Mary along with him, not just to protect her physically, but to protect her from insult and gossip and staring eyes. There's something touchingly beautiful about this man who almost instantly swallowed his pride and gave of himself and who did it because he believed the Lord and expected God's son and loved a girl named Mary and wanted her to know it. So Joseph also went up with Mary, a model of obedient faith and a paragon of careful, spelled with two L's, F-U-L-L, -L, careful love. That unlikeliness surprises me, but it also instructs me. And then there were the shepherds. We've gotten so used to having them around at Christmas, we forget nobody wanted them around back then. They were untouchables. They were unclean. They were unfit to even touch. You probably wouldn't meet one in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, and certainly not in the temple. They could raise the sheep for the sacrifices, but they couldn't go into worship to offer them. And of all the people on the list to notify when the baby came, God put shepherds first. The social outcasts of the day. And there in them I see how long the arms of God are and how far the arms of God reach and what unlikelies they enfold. In my mind's eye, I watch them, those unlikely rough-edged shepherds and I hear them say let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us and I watch them hurry off and I remember that they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child it turned those seekers inside out 
They didn't care what it looked like. They didn't care what people thought of them. They just knew what they had seen and heard and that it had to be told, and they told it. Unlikely missionaries. But once again, it's the least likely God chooses and uses. And then there are the angels. They are expected too, aren't they? Because it seems they've been hovering over the stable and the manger on our mantle almost ever since that night. But they're also unlikely. What was more likely was the advent of an angry God, justifiably upset with his people, hostile towards them, maybe breathing fire, lighting up the night sky with a blaze of destruction. But no, the message was quite different. Whether sung or not, it was like music to their ears. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, hope and help and happiness. What they least expected and even less deserved. A Savior has been born to you. I don't know what language angels use to speak or sing, but two syllables in that sentence make an eternity of difference for me. To you. It was more than even heaven could contain, and suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It was customary in those days for local musicians to come and play songs outside the home where a baby had been born. William Barclay said it's a lovely thought that the minstrelsy of heaven took the place of the minstrelsy on earth and angels sang the songs for Jesus the earthly singers did not. If the hosts of heaven couldn't refrain from singing, then surely we too must join the angel throng to sing again this joyful song. All glory be to God in heaven who unto us his son has given. And what about the rest? The others? The et cetera? For us, et cetera is spelled ETC period. But it's really two words, et, cetera, which mean, and the others, and the rest. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Imagine that, amazement. Not just excitement, not just happiness, not just the warm-heartedness of the season, not just feelings of piety at Christmas worship, but amazement. Wonder, marvel, something of the spine-tingling aspects of such great news that you've never heard before that make it all the more difficult for folks like us who've heard it 50, 100, 500 times before and know all the rest of the details. But something of that wonder must return something of the jaw-dropping amazement of the event. There were some who heard and were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. There's something for us to learn from their amazement, but there is also something insufficient 
about their amazement. Remember the disciples on Easter? After they had seen and heard Jesus and talked to him personally, Luke writes, they still did not believe for joy and amazement. Amazement is only part of the way. We have to get there, but we have to go beyond it. All the way to Mary. Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She kept them all, not just little bits and pieces and fragments that were especially meaningful to her. She didn't want to miss a thing, not a single aspect of the whole great Christmas story. And she treasured them. Oh, we know them. She treasured them. We can remember them, but she treasured them. We keep them. They're all stored away here, but she treasured them. That means she saved them and preserved them and kept watch over them. And you can only do that by keeping them in front of you somehow. Maybe literally, maybe figuratively, keeping a manger scene somewhere in the house all year long. Making every day in some way a Christmas day. Singing every so often. Maybe once a week or more. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Saying to yourself every now and then, Christ the Savior is born. We often keep the pieces in boxes till just after Thanksgiving. Mary kept them in her heart, always. And there she pondered them, which means literally she talked them over with herself. She reflected on them. She reminded herself of them. She rehearsed what she knew. She repeated what she'd heard. She relived what she experienced. She rejoiced in what she believed. And she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She treasured them in her chest. Thomas Aquinas was born in 1225. He was a brilliant man. And the major accomplishment of his life, and what some have called the major academic enterprise of Western civilization, was a set of books that could be 50 volumes or more long, called Summa Theologica. In it, he had 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, 3,000 objections to Christianity answered, and he wasn't finished. And someone wrote this about him. He attempted to gather into one coherent whole all known truth. Anthropology, ethics, physics, astronomy, political and military theory, and philosophy, all organized under the doctrine of God. On December 6, 1273, while at worship, Thomas received a glimpse of glory. Suddenly he knew his attempt to describe God fell so short he never picked up his pen again. <clears throat> his writing ceased. His secretary encouraged him to carry it on. Thomas replied, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written is so much straw. 
never wrote another word. This Christmas, may you see Jesus so clearly and so surely that not another word was needed. My Christmas with Dietrich Bonhoeffer book ends with these few lines. All who at the manger finally lay down all power and honor, all prestige, all vanity, all arrogance and self-will, all who take their place among the lowly and let God alone be high, all who see the glory of God in the lowliness of the child in the manger, these are the ones who will truly celebrate Christmas. Let's pray. Oh God, so long after and so far away, and in the brightness of this December day, we still ask that you'll help us to see what happened in Bethlehem and carry it with us always, the reality of your love in the person of a baby born in a barn to live and die and rise again for us. And seeing that and knowing that and believing that May not another word be necessary, but may our hearts and lives and mouths nevertheless be full of praise. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.